First of all, I want to say Alhamdulillah, God gave me everything. Alhamdulillah. I got one bodyguard. That's God. Oh, he's my bodyguard. He's your bodyguard. I'm yeah. a Muslim. I believe in the religion of Islam. The Quran is the word of God. Early in my life, I had learned that if you want something, you had better make some noise. That's a quote from Malcolm X. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. And welcome to Elevating the Ummah. I'm Mahmoud Ahmad, and this episode is on Malcolm X, the African-American Muslim minister, preacher, and human rights activist, who, more often than not, divided the room, arguably with good reason. He wasn't born a Muslim, and his name wasn't always Malcolm X. He was born as Malcolm Little, spent his most active years as Malcolm X, and died as Al-Hajj Malik Al-Shabbaz. The reason I've chosen him for my second episode is because there's an unbelievably valuable life lesson we can all learn from him. But to get to that, we need to take a look at his whole life. So let's dive in. Let's begin with his childhood and early adulthood. Malcolm Little was born on the 19th of May 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska, in the United States, to the Reverend Earl Little, a Baptist minister, and his wife Louise Little, who was born in Grenada to a white father and West Indian mother. Malcolm was born in a country with great racial divides. The African Americans, although not legally slaves anymore, were mostly treated as second-class citizens and faced unjust violence in many areas. Due to an incident involving the Ku Klux Klan and Malcolm's mother, whilst she was pregnant with him, where they turned up to their house in the middle of the night whilst Earl, Malcolm's father, was away and smashed all the windows, Earl decided to move the family to Milwaukee as soon as Malcolm was born. A quick note on Earl and his political affiliations might be fitting here. He was a follower of Marcus Garvey, leader of the UNIA, and an African-American who preached that, and I quote Malcolm's own words here, exhorting the Negro masses to return to their ancestral African homeland, a cause which had made Garvey the most controversial black man on earth. End quote. The reason that this was important to mention is because it provides us with an insight into the fundamental mentality and atmosphere of what Malcolm would grow up in and around, which would naturally have some influence on his thinking as well. And due to the racial tensions of the USA at the time, Malcolm even mentioned that it has always been his belief that he would die by violence. This was a conclusion he came up with in result of the fact that four of his paternal uncles died at the hands of white men. Anyway, more on that later. So Malcolm had eight siblings, only one brother and one sister being younger than him. And then he had three step-siblings that his father had from his previous marriage, who lived in Boston. As mentioned earlier, Malcolm's mother, Louise, was half white, so she had a slightly lighter skin complexion, which Malcolm also inherited. He was relatively light-skinned compared to his siblings, and his hair had a hint of red hue. Despite feeling a sense of status symbol to be light-skinned during his time in Boston and New York, he eventually came to despise the lighter side of him, referring to it as, and I quote, the white rapist's blood that is in me, end quote. So you can see that there was always an element of race involved in Malcolm's life, right from the beginning. At this point, Malcolm's father decided to move the family to Lansing, Michigan, where his mother gave birth to his youngest sister, Yvonne, Earl moved his family here with the intention of saving up for a shop, 
and spent his days preaching Christianity as a profession. Some people began to notice Earl and felt uncomfortable, so a group of white men in black robes, ironically called the Black Legion, began harassing Earl wherever he went to preach. In 1929, in what Malcolm referred to as the Nightmare Night, their house was set on fire by two white men in the middle of the night and burned to the ground whilst the police and fire department supposedly stood by and watched as the family stood outside, frightened and sobbing in the cold. After moving the family about in temporary housing, Earl built a four-bedroom house for his family two miles out of town and that's where Malcolm says he began to really remember things as it was the home he grew up in. He remembers this time to be full of friction between his parents, always at odds with each other, and his father would regularly beat his siblings if they broke any rules, Malcolm being the exception, due to his lighter skin complexion, he suspected. His father would be a visiting preacher in various churches, but Malcolm, in his own words, even at that young age, couldn't believe in the Christian concept of Jesus as someone divine. But then to be fair, he also said, and I quote, I had very little respect for most people who represented religion. So, as you can tell, early on in Malcolm's life, he wasn't always the religious type. That came at a later point in his life. Describing the economic and professional situation of the African Americans in Lansing, Malcolm mentioned how those who were waiters and boot blacks were considered successful, whilst being a janitor was highly respected by their own community. The real money lay in gambling, or other, as he termed, parasitical ways of living off of poor people. But Malcolm's family, although poor enough for him to describe themselves as eating the whole out of a donut, was doing a little better than most of his fellow African-American townsfolk. That's because his family grew some of their own food in the country, where they lived, so whilst the townsfolk were shouting for their pie in the sky and their heaven in the hereafter, Malcolm says, the white man had his here on earth. Again, Racial divisions can be seen as a consistent theme, mostly due to the climate at the time. For example, he mentions that in a lot of towns in Michigan, including East Lansing where he lived, African Americans weren't allowed out on the streets after dark. Malcolm's parents didn't see eye to eye on many things. His mother didn't want them to eat pork or rabbit, but his father loved it and called it soul food. His mother used to beat Malcolm due to his lighter skin, he thought out of hatred for the way she came to be light-skinned herself, whilst his father favoured him for being light-skinned. Anyway, around about this time, Malcolm learned a valuable life lesson, and I'll quote his exact words here. I learned early that crying out in protest could accomplish things. My older brothers and sisters had started school when sometimes they would come in and ask for a buttered biscuit or something, and my mother, impatiently, would tell them no. But I would cry out and make a fuss until I got what I wanted. I remember well how my mother asked me why I couldn't be a nice boy like Wilfred. But I would think to myself that Wilfred, for being so nice and quiet, often stayed hungry. So early in life, I had learned that if you want something, you had better make some noise. So that's a very fundamental life lesson Malcolm learned at a very young age, and he actually implemented this throughout his life, as we'll see. Right, so around about this time, one afternoon in 1931, Malcolm mentions that he and his siblings came home to their parents having a quarrel, something about his father ripping off the head of a rabbit and demanding his mother to cook it. She didn't want to, but reluctantly began skinning it. Despite her unwilling cooperation, Earl stormed out of the house. At this moment, Malcolm's mother, he claims, 
seemed to have had some kind of vision or premonition, and so she ran out after her husband, calling him to come back home. For some reason, Earl, despite having stormed off angrily earlier, looked back and waved at his wife. Malcolm's mother felt as if something bad was going to happen to Earl, and that he wouldn't return alive. And, lo and behold, later that night, Earl hadn't returned home. And just a few hours later the next morning, the children woke up to a hysteric mother, unable to hold herself together, in front of some policemen, who had brought the news that Earl had died. His head had been smashed in, and his body was almost cut in half, as if a car had run him over. The funeral was a strange event for Malcolm, because despite seeing his father in a church, preaching as a Baptist, his funeral was being held in a funeral home. Over the next week, African-American friends and family were at their house, mainly mourning, but also speculating that it was the Black Legion, consisting of white supremacists, that had finally gotten him. As you can imagine, this entire situation put Malcolm's mother in a predicament, and not just emotionally, but financially as well, since Earl was a breadwinner. He protected and provided for his family of one wife and eight children. He had two life insurance policies. Louise was able to get one policy to pay out, which was the smaller out of the two. The bigger one never paid out because the insurer claimed that Earl had committed suicide, which made his policy void, which was obviously a ruse to get out of paying because how could he have bashed his own head in, then lined himself up on the road to be run over like that? So the family dynamics obviously changed around a bit, with Wilfred dropping out of school to earn money for the family, whilst Hilda, Malcolm's older sister, took care of the rest of her siblings at home. This all happened when Louise was 34 years of age, and within a few years of just about getting by through different jobs, in 1934, it felt as if the Great Depression, which was a huge economic recession at the time, really kicked in. So much so that working between jobs and using credit wasn't enough to feed all those mouths. This is when the welfare checks started coming in, and with that, the state welfare people. Times were tough, as you can imagine, especially for a young widow with eight children in the midst of a depression. Malcolm picked up some habits during this time out of desperation, which weren't so great. He tried to steal an apple or something from the stands outside of grocery stores out of desperation. He'd stay away from home, visiting other people during dinner time to get a meal or steal from other shops, which made him more aggressive in his inclinations. Naturally, word spread around that Malcolm was a thief after being caught a couple of times, and this is when the state welfare people saw their chance. They'd begun talking about how they might need to take Malcolm away from his mother, and as you'd expect, she was furious at the suggestion. But he wasn't just a thief, he'd also pick strawberries for a dollar a day, so he did have a sense of earning his bread. His mother Louise joined the Adventists eventually, and the kids didn't mind going to their meetings, mainly because of the good food. Unfortunately, the state welfare people started applying more pressure now, especially since once Louise was offered an entire pig by an African-American neighbour, but refused due to her religious dietary laws, which are mosaic in nature. This was a good enough excuse for the welfare people to brand her as crazy. Crazy for refusing to feed eight mouths with apparently such good meat. They didn't even listen to her as she tried to explain why she refused it. According to Malcolm, they even started to plant seeds of division amongst the siblings. But they managed to hold on for a while, mainly because of a certain African-American man who began visiting Louise. The kids understood that he was a romantic interest. 
It would have been good to have a strong male presence to help raise and discipline the kids, and most importantly, feed them. As you can imagine though, the man was hesitant in taking on the responsibility of having eight mouths to feed, and stopped visiting. This, Malcolm says, really tipped his mother over. She began talking to herself whilst walking around or sitting in the house, and so the siblings began looking after each other more and more. The welfare people noticed this and took their chance. They moved Malcolm to the Johannes' family, an African-American family who were fond enough of him to take him in their foster care. Life seemed a little better there for him, a little more stable. He was going to a new school now and sometimes would go fishing or hunting rabbits with the Johannes's. During these hunting trips, he figured out a way to hunt the rabbits in a more efficient way than the grown-ups, and he attributed a life lesson to it, that any time you find someone more successful than you are, especially when you're both engaged in the same business, you know they're doing something that you aren't. And I think that's a very good lesson he took away from that experience, which is definitely worth applying in practical life. Anyway, Malcolm would visit his family every now and again, but soon his mother's mental situation deteriorated even further, and the welfare people took this chance to send all of her children away, whilst also getting her admitted to a mental hospital, which she stayed in for the next 26 years. At some point, she was hardly able to recognise her own children, and this was another reason why Malcolm became such a harsh critic of the country he lived in. He blamed the system for what happened to his family. Malcolm went through school like any other teenager, getting into a bit of mischief here and there, even to the extent that he got expelled. The state welfare people sent him to a detention home, and from there he was supposed to go to a reform school. At this detention home in the town of Mason, he was put under the charge of a Mrs. Swirlin, with whom he was able to establish a friendly relationship. Although Mrs. Swirlin, her husband and some other white folk around the home were kind to Malcolm, They'd casually use the N-word referring to him, or anyone of his race, even to his face. And in addition to other such slights, he felt as if they patronised him. He never went on to the reform school, which kind of worked out for him, and was admitted into the high school in town. This period wasn't as rocky for Malcolm. He was getting involved in extracurricular activities and sports, and was even elected class president. His grades were good, and he enjoyed many subjects, apart from maths which he said didn't have any room for argument. He was still regularly meeting his siblings here and there, and at some point, when he was around 14, he wrote a letter to his eldest half-sister, Ella, who lived in Boston. She was the eldest daughter his father had with his first wife. He wrote to her to come and visit them in Lansing. She obliged, and Malcolm noted that, and I quote, She was the first really proud black woman I had seen in my life. She was plainly proud of her very dark skin. End quote. Malcolm was immediately impressed by her. She was a self-made woman who owned properties and helped other relatives to do the same. She took the children to visit their mother at the mental hospital, which, by the way, did the kids good, and left for Boston after offering Malcolm to spend the summer over there with her if he wanted to. So in the summer of 1940, he got on a bus to Roxbury, which he called the Harlem of Boston. There he saw more African-Americans than he could have ever imagined to have existed. Everything about the place, from the music, food, dancing, and a general vibe, felt like home to him. So much so, that when he came back to Mason, his attitude had changed. 
This was partially due to his experience in Boston, but also because of what happened when a generally well-meaning teacher asked him what career he wanted to pursue, and upon hearing the answer from Malcolm that he wanted to be a lawyer, the teacher told him to pursue a realistic career for a black man, like carpentry. This, Malcolm said, became the first major turning point in his life. His whole attitude changed and he became less engaged and integrated with white people, so much so that the school, workplace and detention home noticed. Malcolm didn't feel at home anymore, and so after writing to Ella that he wanted to move to Boston, she somehow managed to get custody of Malcolm. He got on a bus once again to Boston. Regarding this, later on in life, he said, and I quote, All praise is due to Allah that I went to Boston when I did. If I hadn't, I'd probably still be a brainwashed black Christian. End quote. Ella advised Malcolm to spend some time exploring the city first, and then go looking for a job. He did this and explored pretty much most of Boston. One thing he noticed was the apparent class difference between not just whites and blacks, but also blacks and blacks. There were those who'd work some sort of better job and live in a better neighbourhood, and they'd look down on the others. He said that these kinds of black people were just imitating the white man, and of course, he didn't like that at all. He preferred the ghetto area, where according to him, the blacks acted natural. Here he came across a pool room where a worker named Shorty noticed him and called out, Hey Red, to him, red being the hue of his hair. Shorty turned out to be from Lansing too, which made Malcolm his homeboy, as he called him. He schooled him about most things and people he'd need to know about in this area. By evening, he even managed to find him a job as a shoeshine boy at the state ballroom, an opportunity which he jumped at. He learned the trade from the outgoing shoeshine boy who managed to bet on the right numbers. Shoeshining wasn't the main job here, it seemed. It was more the other hustles. Liquor, contraception, getting hookers for both whites and blacks. And this was a new phase in Malcolm's life. He was exposed to a world which he hadn't seen yet. All these ballroom dances, especially the black dances, which he said were far less choreographed than the white ones. He began consuming liquor, cigarettes and weed, and he got into the habit of using credit, something Shorty introduced him to. Another thing Shorty introduced him to was straightening his hair into what they called a conch. A mixture of a few ingredients such as Vaseline, potatoes and lye was used to create this cream which would quite literally burn your hair straight. It was a painful procedure, especially the very first time, but the results seemed worth it to him at the time. Although, looking back, he commented, and I quote, This was my first really big step towards self-degradation, when I endured all of that pain, literally burning my flesh to have it look like a white man's hair. He went on to conk his hair for the next few years, without fail, as it was a procedure that had to be oft-repeated since the effects would wear off. Right about this time, when he was hardly 16 years old, Malcolm got into Lindy Hopping, a dance style which was famous on the weekends at the ballroom. This became a regular ritual for him, and he'd become a pretty good dancer considering the amount of girls who wanted to dance with him. He left his job as a shoeshine boy, and his half-sister Ella managed to get him a job at a drugstore as a fountain boy, serving drinks and snacks. It was here that he met a girl called Laura, whom he eventually convinced to go Lindy Hopping with him. She was a very decent girl, living with a religious grandmother who, if she knew, wouldn't have allowed it. But just this once, for the first time in her life, she lied to her grandmother to be able to go to the dance. They hit it off perfectly. The dance chemistry was great. 
they became quite the duo at the dancing over the next few weeks, and this made them famous amongst the attendees of the ballroom. Except, one evening, after a dance, Malcolm's eye caught another woman, a white woman, who clearly had eyes for him. He couldn't resist. It's like he abandoned Laura that very instant for this woman, whom he called Sophia, which wasn't actually her real name. She wasn't just white. She was clearly well off, judging from her clothes, and owned a convertible. In the words of Malcolm, having her as his woman was the ultimate status symbol amongst the African-Americans in Boston. Many years later, when Malcolm finally saw Laura again, she was in quite a state. She was addicted to liquor and drugs and had ended up selling her body to men to finance the addiction. She ended up hating the men she sold her body to, which in turn made her into a lesbian. Malcolm never forgot that. He felt as if he was to blame for her deterioration, and all that too because of a white woman. He could never forgive himself. It was around this time that news broke that Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor, bringing the US into the Second World War. Due to the shortage of railroad workers, Malcolm, who was still a minor, managed to pass off as 21 and get a job on the rail between Boston and New York. That's when he discovered Harlem, the seventh heaven of New York, as he called it. Here he saw the African-American scene from Boston multiply manyfold. People talked, dressed and hustled in such a way that Malcolm was sold on the first day. He knew Harlem was for him. Even here, they began calling him red due to his hair colour. Harlem was quite the scene. There were so many stores, so many hustlers, so many prostitutes. And it was an unwritten rule that it was off-limits to white servicemen. Soon enough, Malcolm's vocabulary included all of the profanity and style of Harlem. When he went back to Lansing to visit friends and family, they were shocked, to say the least, at his appearance and way of talking. He was in between railroad jobs when finally, one of the bartenders at a bar he frequented in Harlem offered him a job as a waiter, which was perfect for Malcolm. He clearly felt like he belonged in Harlem. Harlem wasn't always like this. In fact, it was only a shell of what it used to be up to the 1929 Great Depression. But it still had enough going on to pull Malcolm in. At the waiting job, he educated himself to as much as he could, from customers, cooks and bartenders. Everyone talked. And Malcolm learnt the art of numbers, pimping, con games, thievery, and even armed robbery. He naturally attracted the attention of some of the big hustlers in the area, West Indian Archie being one of them. He was one to be feared and respected, and he brought Malcolm into his service by getting a tailor-made suit for him. Malcolm was taught the ins and outs of the game, such as identifying the plain-clothed officers patrolling the streets. And he made a new friend, Sammy the Pimp, best friend actually. As his title suggests, he was an expert at bringing women into the profession of prostitution and making money off of it. Eventually, Malcolm began to be known as Detroit Red in the streets, due to Detroit being a more famous city in Michigan than Lansing, and that name stuck with him. In one of his hustles, he mistakenly offered a black army soldier who was visiting the bar where Malcolm worked the number of a prostitute. He knew better, but he did it anyway. This got him to the police precinct, and of course, he lost his job. Now he was looking for another hustle, and it turned out that selling marijuana was quite lucrative. He really got into that hustle, until he had to leave town for a while since he was being watched and pursued by the narcotics police. 
Instead, he began selling marijuana as a travelling salesman on trains to different cities, following the musicians who played in bands. He met his brother Reginald one day when he returned to New York to stock up, and they caught up with each other over the next few days. Here he gave Reginald an important lesson. In order to get something, you had to look as though you already had something. And this is true in practical life. When you dress a certain way, or think or act a certain way, in order to reach a goal, God puts things into place and makes it happen for you. Meanwhile, in 1943, the military wanted to draft all able-bodied males. Despite being 17, Malcolm acted much older, so he was in their scope. But he managed to avoid the draft by presenting himself as a bit of a psychotic case, so the army psychiatrist wrote him off as unable to serve. This is when Malcolm went to the depths of sin. He was gambling professionally, once even pulling a gun to someone's face due to a misunderstanding. He managed to bring his brother Reginald into the hustler's game, albeit not as extreme. He got him to start selling counterfeit clothes, watches and belts, etc. And when the police were too suspicious of him due to the gun-pulling incident and his past as a weed dealer, he switched trades to armed burglary with his friend Sammy. However, after one or two close calls and Sammy almost pulling a gun on him because he shoved his woman, he left that hustle as well, only to end up in driving around clients to their prostitution prospects. These clients were mainly older white men looking for black women. He even started playing the numbers, in other words, placing bets on lucky numbers. And that too with West Indian Archie, one of the more ruthless guys in the streets who had a photographic memory. All this whilst being constantly high on narcotics and weed, in addition to four packets of cigarettes a day. And things were looking a little dangerous for him. West Indian Archie was under the impression that Malcolm had lied to him about his number and gotten $300 off of him by fraud, while some Italian gangsters were after a man whose physical description matched that of Malcolm's, and a new young hustler was out to put a bullet in him, and the police were trying to find some sort of weapons or drugs on him to put him away for a long time. With everything closing in on him in all four directions, his friend Sammy arranged for Shorty to come and take Malcolm back to Boston to lay low for a while. Again, there was never a time when Malcolm wasn't high. It's what got him through the days. Back in Boston, he decided to get back into a hustle to make a living. This time, he got together a group. Shorty, his friend Rudy, Malcolm's girlfriend Sophia, the white woman, and her younger sister, who was with Shorty at the time. They became one of the many organised burglary gangs in Boston. They'd hit up rich white people's homes. Each of them had a duty. The girls would get themselves invited to their houses and provide the men with a map of the goods. Then, two of the men would go in at night whilst one sat ready in the getaway car with the motor running. They did this and lived it up for a while, until finally, one of the stolen belongings had been identified by a jeweller, who Malcolm gave a watch to to get fixed. The next thing he knew, the police had him surrounded in the shop. During this time, he encountered a few critical situations where he could have been shot, one of them being Sophia's white husband, yes, she was married, finding out that she was seeing Malcolm and turning up to his apartment with the gun. This was at the exact time that Malcolm was being taken to the precinct. Later, he would reflect that Allah had been watching over him. One by one, the whole gang was caught by the police, except Rudy, who managed to escape before they got to him. What Malcolm observed was that the court wasn't really too fussed about the burglary. 
It was more about these black men having a bad influence on those white women, and even worse for them, having relations with them. It seemed as if that was what really brought the hammer down on them, and they were sentenced to prison for 10 years. But even in prison, he managed to get his narcotics and cigarettes through the prison guards. He was written to by his brothers and sisters, some of them mentioning that their church is praying for him, but he only replied with utmost profanity. He had stooped to such a level of atheism and profanity, cursing God and religion all in one sentence, whilst being drugged up on narcotics, to such an extent that he earned a nickname amongst the prisoners and prison guards alike. Satan. And when all hope seemed lost for Malcolm, going to prison turned out to be a blessing in disguise, because this is where he found Allah and the religion of Islam. This seems to be a fitting place to finish the story for this episode. We've had a look at Malcolm's childhood and early adulthood, up to the age of 21. If you've been listening this far, I'm sure you'll agree that he certainly seemed like he was on a dark and sinful path. And you may be wondering, what was the point of narrating this entire story, which seemingly has nothing to do with Islam or Malcolm as a Muslim? I'll explain in his own words, and I quote, People are always speculating, why am I as I am? To understand that of any person, his whole life, from birth, must be reviewed. All of our experiences fuse into our personality. Everything that ever happened to us is an ingredient. End quote. Remember the purpose of this podcast. We need to elevate the Ummah to greater standards. The best way forward is to elevate ourselves spiritually, mentally and physically and work towards a brighter future. We must learn to set aside our differences and find strength in unity. Well, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned for the next episode where we look at Malcolm's journey to Islam and life as a Muslim. I kindly request you to rate this podcast and share it with your friends and family and stay tuned for more inspirational stories in the future, inshallah. With peace, assalamu alaikum.